You're listening to Life of the Record, classic albums told by the people who made them. My name is Dan Nordheim. Heatmiser formed in Portland, Oregon in 1992 by Elliot Smith, Neil Gust, Tony Lash, and Brant Peterson. They signed to Frontier Records and released their debut album, Dead Air, in 1993. Their second album, Cop and Speeder, was released in 1994, with Brant Peterson leaving the band shortly after. Sam Coombs filled in on bass as they signed to Virgin Records and began building their own studio in a house in Portland. Around this same time, Elliot Smith released two albums, and was starting to have some success as a solo artist. Heatmiser's third and final album, Mike City Sons, was released in 1996. In this episode, for the 25th anniversary, Neil Gust, Tony Lash, and Sam Coombs look back on how Mike City Sons came together. This is The Making of Mike City Sons. Hi, uh, this is Neil. I was in Heat Miser. What I didn't understand was that artists have a process. And I just thought that if it didn't come out sounding great, then you were shitty at it, which is not how it works. Like, you have to start with something and develop it. And what I saw Elliot do with the solo stuff, since it was separate from the band, and I could see it improve was I watched an artist develop. I realized if I'm going to improve as a songwriter, I have to develop my work. But I didn't know how, and I felt like I was trying to catch up to his process. And because not only did his process sound really good, it was successful. It connected with other people. And so suddenly he got on a roll. And when you get on a roll, like, if you're outside the role, it's just, I, I was trying to catch up to that role and feeling like I didn't know how to do it. What I wish I could do is go back and explain to my 20-year-old self, you just have to show up and do your work. It, it's going to sound bad for months. It doesn't matter. It's not what it's about. You just have to show up and do your work. The way Heatmiser started was in college with me and Elliot, and we bonded straight away over music. And I think we started 
playing together and recording stuff almost immediately. What we bonded over was that we'd both done recording in high school and we both really loved Elvis Costello. And then we ended up discovering music at the same time, like the Pixies and Fugazi. We both just got CD players. It like changed our record buying habits. And we ended up going and getting a lot of old stuff. And at the time, I remember there's these Ryko reissues of David Bowie that were incredible. There are these gold mines of records that it, it seems ridiculous now with streaming because you can just listen to anything. But at the time, like I found records that I'd never heard before in my 20s, like Hunky Dory and Funhouse by the Stooges and Marky Moon and Cabaret Voltaire and Can Mago Tego. It all made us super excited about the idea that you could mix all this stuff up. But Fugazi and the Pixies were just completely the first thing in our faces. And when we moved to Portland after graduating from college, so it's the end of the spring of 1991, Elliot had bought a Marshall half stack with his like student loan money. I mean, that pretty much sets up what you sound like. And so I was saving up. It took about a year and a half to save up and buy another Marshall half stack. And once we had those, that pretty much sets up that you are a loud fucking rock band. There were a hundred watt Marshall half stacks. They're as loud as you can get. And we were super into it. And that's how we made Dead Air. But then that was never like everything that we wanted to do. We still had all these other interests and things like the Beatles, <laughs> the Rolling Stones. But it, we were also in the Pacific Northwest at the very second it all blew up when grunge just went supernova. I mean, that was the summer that Nevermind came out. When we put out Dead Air, we just immediately wanted to do something else. It just got sort of a mixed reaction. And it's also really hard to go out on tour and deliver that kind of energy all the time. That has to be built into your personality and it wasn't built into ours. Elliot's reaction was just to, you know, go back to his four track and record songs quietly. And my reaction to it was to buy a tremolo pedal and stop using the half stack. That's what started us changing up the sound. We love bands that changed a lot, and we wanted to be a band like that. I'm Tony Lash. I was the drummer in Heatmiser, and also our uh, on-again, off-again, in-house engineer, producer. I'd known Elliot for so long, and we'd worked on all these various projects in like different styles and idioms, and so it just seemed like a perfectly natural side project for Elliot to be doing, knowing him as long as I had. And yeah, just knowing that he was fluid in a lot of styles beyond just the muscly rock that Heatmiser was doing, especially in our, around our first record. He recorded Roman Candle between when we did uh, Dead Air and Cop and Speeder. I remember it, it was actually on our tour for Cop and Speeder where, you know, we'd been out for a few days or maybe a week or two, and he was already just so disenchanted with the hard rock heat miser, and he wanted to change it up. 
the day before a show. And I was, I guess, uh, feeling inflexible about it. I felt insecure about suddenly, you know, getting brushes and playing a show like that when I was used to playing the way that I had been for a couple of years at that point and, the, and playing those songs like that. And so I felt kind of ambushed. My hesitance to kind of just be on board for him was he got really frustrated by that immediately. And so I never set out to be a drummer, but I, I had more fun playing rock drums, you know, than playing quiet drums. Like, it's just more fun for my body. But, I, you know, recording is different. And by the time we were actually recording Mike City Sons, I don't remember feeling like, oh, I want to be playing these drums way more rocking than I am. It's like, what's what serves the song? I think the music certainly got way better when we quieted things down, you know, and left room for it to still be rocking sometimes, but to be much quieter others. Elliot's solo stuff was taking off in a way that I think was a surprise to everybody, including Elliot. Not because we didn't think it was great. It's just, it really connected with people so much more than, I mean, anything, any, anybody we knew who was playing music, much less just our band. And then at the same time, Tony was pursuing his own thing as a, as a producer. Also, it, it was a transition time between Brant playing bass for Heatmiser and Sam coming in. And Sam kept saying he wasn't, he wasn't the bass player. He was just helping us. He was just filling in. And we went through the motions of trying to find another bass player, but secretly we all knew Sam was the bass player. This is Sam Coombs, and uh, amongst other things, I was bassist in Heat Miser on uh, the Mike City Sons record. We were all just friends and, um, you know, just playing in bands here. And they said, Brant's out of the band. We got a tour booked. Do you want to come out on tour? And I said, yeah, of course I do. Uh, that sounds fun. But, I, you know, I have my own band. I got my own thing going. I, I you know, I'm not going to be the Heat Miser bass player. I don't think, you know nowadays i realize like well now of course you have to be in uh, you know at least two bands if not more just to like <laughs> just to keep working but in those days i thought oh my band's you know it's going to take off and i'm going to be busy i won't be able to do this i was always just sort of helping them out in my mind although they never found anybody else and i ended up uh doing all the all the rest of the tours and working on that album I remember being, um, it might have been even just the first tour that I did with them, or one of the earlier tours uh, before Mike City Sons. I just remembered, you know, Heat Miser in my head, they were friends of mine. We played gigs. I'd seen them numerous times, and I thought they were kind of like a hard rock band. They sang loud, like yelling almost, and, you know, I, I liked it. I thought that was awesome. And when we played on tour, you know, we played those songs that way the older songs and and it was a lot of fun but i remember in a house or a hotel or someplace on on tour and elliot had brought his uh, acoustic guitar out and he just like sat down and started playing this really complicated finger picking piece you know that might have had singing or not i don't know but i just was like oh this this guy's like a lot more than <laughs> than just like loud guitars and shouting and um but i, I didn't actually know that about him uh from when I first knew him. Uh, so that was kind of the first point that I saw that he was, he was a, uh, you know, an advanced and talented musician. And I thought that was, it was quite interesting. And, and later he went on to 
go more in that direction and leave the the rock and roll stuff behind. I know that, you know, especially in retrospect, like Elliot had a lot of ambivalence about signing a deal with Heat Miser because, you know, he had done his first two records and I think wanted to have more, just more creative control over how his songs came out. But yeah, I mean, I remember us being on tour, I think it was the first tour we did with Sam and we were in Salt Lake City. And then we had a, like a band meeting shortly after that where it really felt like, I can't remember all the details, this is a long time ago now, but I remember saying at one point to Elliot, it's like, we don't have to keep doing this if you don't want. You know, basically like giving him an out because there was this feeling like he was really unhappy. But for reasons I can only speculate about, uh, he decided to go ahead with it. So we signed this deal with, with Virgin and it was the culmination of years of work and it was something that we always said that we wanted to do. But I remember the day we signed that it didn't feel celebratory. It felt like Elliot was really conflicted signing that deal. I think because business-wise, it wasn't the best decision for him to do that because it ended up connecting Frontier Records to his solo stuff. And after Heat Miser was over and Elliot went on to DreamWorks, Frontier got a cut. And it just, it wasn't fair. I think he saw the possibility of that happening and it gave him a lot of pause before signing a major label contract with Heat Miser. But he did it because that's what we'd set out to do. And when the moment arrived, we kept going. But it was a weird day something that I thought was going to be the greatest step we'd taken as a band, and it, it didn't feel like it. At that time, those guys had signed a contract with a record label and got an advance, and um, they were able to leave their jobs, they had money, and work on this record. They set up the studio in this house. But I never signed the contract, and I did not want to sign the contract because I didn't want to have trouble with my other band, which was my main focus, and this is still an active band. So, you know, I didn't want to mess up Quasi by signing some contract without even looking at the contract. You always hear stories about people who like, oh no, like I can't, I don't own my songs, you know? Or, like, um, so I didn't get the advance. I was still working my job. We spent a long time negotiating with Virgin because we really wanted to have complete creative control. You know, they were, not totally open to that at first, but I think they were, I mean, again, looking back, were really motivated to sign Elliot, maybe more than the band, and um, eventually gave us complete control over how we recorded it, what the final version of the album was, the mixes, everything. Like, it was not something that was easy to negotiate with a major label at that time. We wanted to build our own studio. And personally, I just thought that was such a, cool idea because we watched the Beastie Boys do it for Check Your Head. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. That they built out this thing and then just taught themselves how to do all this stuff. And I really wanted to learn all that. But Tony and Elliot were pretty well educated about the recording process, but I wasn't. So that was really exciting to me. We also just wanted time to develop our songs in the studio more than we had 
usually we only had like a day or two to blast through it. And obviously with the major label budget, we wanted to spend the money in a way that allowed us to make just the coolest record we could possibly make. It's really common for bands to get in advance and just spend it all on recording equipment and record themselves, or it was in the 90s. I don't know if people get advances anymore. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, that's a common way to do it. And it's smart, really, because then you have, you have something uh, material to bring out of the process rather than just giving it all to a studio. At the time, I remember thinking, if we made a great record, this will just make things easier for us. But the funny thing was, is that after we finished that record, we just kind of abandoned it and it didn't make anything easier at all. <laughs> it was the end of something. It turned out to be the end of something. It wasn't clear it was going to be the end until after we were done. And then it was. But I think there's like a feel in that record that it's dawning on us that it's the end of the band. That's how it kind of started. But then we started buying gear, you know, renting this house and putting in soundproofing. And it was walking distance from where I lived in Portland. And then Elliot went on tour and Tony started producing another band. And I was the only person using the studio. And I would walk over there and read the manuals to how to work the compressor and stuff. Tony would give me basic settings that I could put in and... And then I would just work on my songs, but nobody was around and I'd end up like playing solitaire on the computer for a while and then go home and then come back the next day and mess around a little and play solitaire again. It was really weird, but that went on for a while until we finally got together. I mean, you set up a studio, there's a lot to work out. I mean, that was a, the hard path, I think, and it led to a lot of tension in the band because could have gone into a studio with the producer and a lot of things would have been just taken care of rather than having to start from scratch. And it seemed like maybe that led to some of the conflicts and recording philosophy and so forth. But I think it was the best way to do it. There was also just a weird vibe. I think Elliot went in expecting to get friction about the way he wanted to do things. And Tony came in expecting to get friction about the way he wanted to approach things. And so there is fucking friction. The hard thing was is the, the communication was poor and like he wouldn't necessarily talk about what was frustrating him. It would just come out. My feeling was that I wouldn't really know it was coming until I was in the middle of him being really frustrated and there being some kind of conflict which is, was hard to deal with. And, you know, he was learning how to be the kind of songwriter he wanted to be. 
and how his songs came out. And I was learning how to be the kind of producer I wanted to be. The differences I remember are that I think Elliot didn't mind if things didn't sound super professional. And Tony took real pride in his experience and all the things that he'd learned and and wanted things to sound as good as he could make them. They just came at it from different perspectives. Elliot was, I'm a songwriter and I just want it to feel like something. And music that's recorded, that's not well-produced or that's recorded on four track or that's recorded on without using the finest equipment that you can get your hands on, it still feels like something. And Tony didn't disagree with that. His interest in what he wanted to do was try to make it sound as cool as he could using his tools, you know? So I thought they both sounded great. I was like, I got no dog in this fight. I wasn't there all the time. I would come after work. So I missed a lot of the stuff. I would sometimes show up and um, where's Tony? Uh, he's he's gone. <laughs> I remember having to go to like a cafe down the street and be like, Tony, come on back. It's okay. And so, I, I mean, and Tony can speak to that more than me. I, I, you know, but I think what was, what was happening was Elliot had some strong ideas about what he wanted to do and how he wanted to do it. And when a band member is also producing, it's a double whammy because you're, you critique each other's playing, each other's parts. You're trying to make something good. You're sort of haggling about that. And then you're also haggling about this whole other element that's only semi-related, the, the way that the sounds are being captured and so forth. When it's an outside producer, if you get into arguments with them, it's fine. It doesn't break the band up. But when, when the producer is, uh, you know, the drummer, it makes for problems. And we had historically had a lot of tension between the two of us in terms of how I approached recording versus what he wanted. But I think by that point, it was hard for him to see how I was changing. Because, you know, in the 80s, as I was really first getting into recording and production, I was really into this very highly produced 80s stuff. And he was way more into raw recordings. And so there was this push and pull from the beginning. And so I think that he was always on very high alert for feeling like I was trying to be too perfectionistic or too polished about things um, and not having enough rawness or spontaneity, which I think was a fair argument for a while. But then I was really changing right around this time. You know, like if you hear the difference between Dead Air and Cop and Speeder, you know, that was a year apart. It's much more organic and raw and breathes a lot more. And then after that I started doing some records like I did the first Dandy Warhols record and I was just getting way more experimental with how I was doing things so yeah I guess there was this feeling like hey I am changing over here and I'm open to other ideas but the way he would react in the moment would be so frustrating because it would happen without a conversation that I felt like my hands were tied a little bit the only other thing that I remember them disagreeing about was just the sound of symbols because I think that high end is what made Elliot feel like it was too sort of polished and too sparkly. He just didn't want there to be so much sizzle. And, you know, I think I've said it before in other interviews, but sort of guys in their 20s aren't typically the best 
adult communicators all the time, you know? So there was just that whole dynamic, you know, it wasn't just Elliot. Eventually, we also realized that we needed help just because the vibe could get unproductive pretty quick. Tony was connected with Rob Schnapf, who at the time was in a producing partnership with Tom Rothrock. And those guys really wanted to work with Elliot. And we went back to Virgin and said, can we have more money to get these guys to help us? And they were like, okay. It wasn't actually that hard for me to want to bring Rob and Tom in because we had been working on our own for a while at that point. I can't remember exactly how long, but it was clear that I mean, we kept running into these impasses. We had done quite a bit of recording on our own, like several of the songs on the album we had started on our own without their help. But I think I felt like, I mean, I was getting so frustrated with the dynamic that it felt like kind of a relief to bring them in. I was really open to it. And that's when it broke the logjam and we started to get stuff that we ended up using on the record. Get Lucky is one of the ones we did from the ground up with Rob and Tom. I don't think we had ever played that song live. So this is one of the ones we created in the studio. And I remember when we were doing the drum track, there was some frustration. I wasn't quite getting the feel that Elliot wanted. And when we were doing Get Lucky, I just remember being on the other side of all these foam blocks, <laughs> trying to play the song. And I could feel that Elliot was not liking what I was doing or it wasn't quite right or there was some frustration, but Rob and Tom were doing a good job of filtering that through to their comments. Because I don't remember hearing a lot directly from Elliot as I was trying to get that drum track. So it was a good example about how having Rob and Tom there enabled us to get the album done at all. I loved Get Lucky. I loved it when Elliot would write a rock song. And there was this thing that he wanted to do that I thought was so weird and cool, where we would go in the background, oh, you know, we had to go down and then bend back up. And it, it took a while to get it, but that to me was, I just thought it was really creative. I remember that the idea came from I Am The Walrus by The Beatles. Maybe you've heard it. <laughs> uh, just that kind of like yelling background vocal. I think, I don't know who had the idea, but I think that was the inspiration for it. The other thing is that Aaron Day, who was in this band called Sone in Portland, came by the studio while we were working on it. And Elliot just gave him the mic to like talk in the song. And so that's what he did. One of my favorite little bits that happened in that is Tom Rothrock was editing Aaron's vocal take and there was this one part where he just cut his voice. So it goes like, Flat, and it cuts. That record is full of details like that, where it intentionally doesn't make any sense, and it's in there. Now, see, that's the one that Elliot played on. I, I tried, you know, I tried a couple things on it. I actually 
didn't love the song. So that probably contributed, you know, I was like, I don't really like this song and I'm not really feeling it. And Elliot was like, I'll just play it. And I said, great, <laughs> you, you do it. Um, now, I, I haven't listened to that record in a long time. I should probably give it a spin. Now I'm sure I would probably appreciate it more. To me, that was the weakest song of that batch of songs. And I was, I was cranky and just didn't even play on that song. I mean, to me, it's got a nice rhythmic feel. I didn't like the concept, like just suddenly shouting as a chorus, get lucky. You know, it sounded very trite and contrived, like trying to have a hit and have it having some silly catchphrase that, that didn't make any sense to me, where all the other songs are um, pretty considered and, and, and accomplished lyrically, I think. Musically, I think Get Lucky's is great. It's got a nice groove and um, no problem with it. Again, I was cranky and I probably didn't give it proper attention. I remember I, I was not a giant fan of that song for whatever reason. I, it felt like it had a bit of a cocky swagger to it that I felt somehow was uh, not organic to us. And so I, I was not really a huge fan of it for a long time. I remember walking by this club called EJ's at some point, I think after we had broken up and Elliot was playing a solo show and I heard him playing that song just acoustic. And I was like, okay, this song makes a lot more sense to me now like this. And then many years later, when my son was maybe eight or nine years old and he started to listen to Heat Miser and he really liked that song and somehow his enjoyment of it helped cast it in a new light for me. And I like it a lot more now than I ever did back then. So much was changing with the speed in which Elliot's success was propagating, you know, and it was really clear that it was connecting so much more deeply than what the band was doing, that it made perfect sense that that's what he would want to do. And those records are fucking great. You know, they, it sounds incredible. I love his solo records. I didn't want him to give that up to be in our band, but I didn't want to give up my band. And so we were just trying to figure it out. Like, can these both exist at the same time? And I think we thought it could, but a lot of people didn't want it because it made it a lot harder to put Elliot through a music business machine. Everybody's second home, always trying to get me alone. Easy way to lose it all Always selling all those fails Over by the west side rails but I don't really need that now I never really did anyhow I only really need it Tell me about the last, the last year of your life. Tell you about the last year of my life. Yeah. 
While his solo stuff started to blow up, I got this feeling from some friends and definitely from people that we knew in the music industry that they just didn't have, they no longer had any use for me. You know, that what they wanted was Elliot. And there was a lot of weird stuff that just felt like, are they trying to pry him out of this band? Because it's his band. He wanted to do it. He may have had some internal conflicts about, about it, but he definitely wanted to make a great Heat Miser record. I mean, it wouldn't sound as good as it does if he didn't. And it's not like you could tell Elliot what to do, you know? So <laughs> he was there because he wanted to be. But if we would just go out socializing or something, just the feeling was so different after he became a successful solo artist because you became invisible if you were with him or people would sort of try to elbow you out of the way. It was really weird. It, it was just a pervasive feeling of becoming invisible. Please turn out the light. I get a sick confusion headache trying to figure out who's right. Dreaming on the silver screen. Waking up your plank was men You little bastard, little boy in blue Someone's gonna get to you And fuck up everything you do Plankless Man was another song that we started with Rob and Tom So they were there from the ground up So most of my memories have to do with the drums I'm trying to remember if I was around for any of the overdubs, but I don't think I was, or I don't have any strong memories of it. Don't remember much about recording it once we found the feel and once we got it to lay way back. It felt right. I don't remember specific songs, honestly. They were all recorded in a similar way. Like I said, I would come over after work. So I would work. I was working at Kinko's Copies in downtown Portland. So I would work all day 
And after work, I would come over to the studio and that where they had been working all day, <laughs> they would say, ah, you know, we got a couple songs ready for you. And I would say, all right, uh, let's hear them. And sometimes they were, I had never heard the song. Sometimes it was just like they were ready to go and I had never heard it. So I just kind of took a second, cobbled together the first thing I thought of in my head as a bass part and tracked it. You know, that's not, sometimes that's a good way to work for certain types of music, but for that more crafted pop stuff like that, it's not ideal. Uh, so there were a couple songs where I, I was not happy uh, with my bass part. I thought they were pretty mundane. A couple other songs are pretty good. They're okay. There was, I do remember having a little bit of a, of a meltdown in the studio because the producer, or one of the producers, Rob Schnapp, who's, who's still a friend, I don't, it didn't cause any lasting problems, but, um, you know, I'd come to the house after work, be kind of tired and be like, I'm okay, I'm right, I'm going to do this anyway. And, and, um, and he would sit kind of right in front of me with a notepad and write down every little thing that he thought was a flub, like <laughs> scrutinizing my playing as I was tracking and writing it down, like, we're going to go back and fix that. And um, I was like, I can't play when you're sitting there writing down these flubs and, and they're not even flubs. They're, <laughs> they're just, that's just bass playing. And um, it wasn't a civil discussion. It was more like, oh, I'm storming out of the room. And there was a lot of storming out of the room during those sessions in general anyway, because we were volatile young people. <laughs> but eventually they were like, okay, we'll, we'll be mellow. And I don't remember if it was that song specifically, but that was happening in the first half of the recording for that. And, and that was, it was putting me really uptight. <laughs> but we got that sorted out eventually. One of the things that we did when we signed to a major label is we bought new guitars. And Elliot had a, a Rickenbacker. And I remember... Elliot using his Rickenbacker on Plain Clothes Man, and that's what gives it that jangle. I do remember that song specifically. We filmed a video for it in, a, in like a grocery store outside of LA. I just, I used like a, a Beatle bass on that video, which I did not use, of course, in the um, recording. But uh, now I, in my head, I think like, I'm, oh, that's the song with the Beatle bass. When we flew down to LA to do the video, I was already pretty resigned to leaving the band at that point. Like my frustration level had just gotten so high and my producing career was starting to take off and I just felt like I didn't need the tension anymore. So that trip was, it was difficult. I liked the process of doing the video. That was fun. And, you know, I remember driving around with Elliot. I think he was, I don't know if it was quite finished, but he was just finishing up either or and, I remember him playing it for me in the car, but I was I was just hiding so much frustration just trying to get through the process of the video that I don't remember much of my impression of that album, and I still haven't really gone back to it because it's just kind of married to this feeling of tension for me. I think the biggest difference between Elliot's solo stuff and the band stuff is the groove. The groove in Heat Miser is, is much more forward than what I heard on Elliot's solo records, but they're still his songs. My favorite part of the, about that song is is the back end when it picks up and it everything is there. I love the back end of that song. And I'm so unsurprised. I remember, I remember why I dream black and white. 
And let me just say, there's no denying that as a songwriter, Elliot got on a roll and he was on that roll with Mike City Sons. Those are great songs. But we were working on them together, but I just started to feel like my contribution just didn't matter. That I just wasn't ever going to be as good as him. And so I lost my confidence. I heard some of the tracks that we never put on the record and I could hear just how different because they they were from the more of the beginning of the sessions and I sound a lot more confident in those tracks than in the stuff that ended up on the record. By the time I was doing vocals on that record, I had no confidence. And rock music is just all confidence. You have to have a you know, a delusional amount of confidence to do it. Yeah, as far as those flying jets goes, we had played this song before we started recording. So I think the way the song was laid out was pretty established. Usually there would be some kind of quick conversation with Rob and Tom about how the drums should sound, but I liked what they were doing, so I didn't get too involved with that. And like I said earlier, at that point, you know, after we had had those months of recording the album without them where it was so frustrating, I just deeply wanted things to go smoothly. So I really tried to do whatever I could to just have it go smoothly. And I don't remember any hiccups on that song. I imagine that when we were doing the basic, uh, Neil would have been playing an electric for me to play along with, but yeah, definitely the way the acoustics are makes the song sound a lot cooler than if it were just electric guitars. That song, yeah, it's a nice song. I think that it's hard to remember if that was one of the ones that we had already been playing for a while. So Neil is a very distinctive rhythm guitar player and his songs are very fun to play live. They have like a groove and a bounce to them. So like I I always associate his songs, I I remember playing them live more than tracking them for sure. Every once in a while we would come up with a part, I would show Elliot something or he would show me something and we'd become obsessed with it. And I showed him the six chords in the chorus and he loved that. And so I knew I, I needed to keep that part and ditched the rest of the song that I was working on, and I just built the song around that. I wanted Elliot to love my songs so bad, and I would do anything to write something that he would respond to. And I learned so much from his songs, which were fucking hard to play. I learned so much about songwriting from him because he just wrote so many songs so fast and got better so fast. But... I always felt like I was way more into things rocking, like the groove of something. And that doesn't necessarily mean a Marshall half stack. You know, I felt like that was something that I could do that he couldn't or that he just didn't care about. He probably could have done it if he cared about it. 
but I don't think he did. So I felt like I'm going to write groovy songs that also are something that he would respond to, which meant that I had to try to absorb his sort of melodic sensibility, which is not easy to do. He was really sophisticated melodically. Neil had written a lot of good songs before Mike City Sons, but his songwriting just got so much better. And I haven't talked to him much about his process of getting to that point. But yeah, his songs are really strong. I think there have been a lot of people over the years that have made comments about, you know, how much better Elliot's songs were, or, you know, I've seen comments about, oh, you know, this would be a great album if you took that other guy's songs off. And I don't think that's true at any point in our career, but especially on Mike City Sons. Neil's songs completely stand up to Elliot's and provide um, a really different flavor, a different feel that I think helps, um, you know, the combination of the two of them makes the record way stronger than it could have been if it were just one or the other. Those guys were the songwriters and singers, Elliot and Neil, and it's not only just their voices, their singing and their songwriting style. It was, to me, the rhythmic feel of that band, especially on the more rockin' songs, is is just really fun. I, they have a like a push and pull kind of back and forth rhythmic thing going, um, you know, when they're at their best with their guitar. To me, it's like the it was was the hallmark of of the band. Although it's a little bit less apparent on the more crafted songs on Mike City Sun, but the dynamic between those two was was interesting. Not just you know it, 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 multi levels of dynamic and interplay between those two. subject matter of the song is about was the feel of being in that band and losing confidence and just feeling isolated and sort of stuck in a weird dreamlike purgatory waiting for everyone to come back and work just trying to cut through the noise of everything else going on outside of us making that record but a lot of what i was writing about wasn't obvious to me at the time, but when I listened to it recently, I was like, oh, this is about our friendship breaking up. You know, like people sing about relationships breaking up, you know, with lovers, but friendships, it's different. And it, it really wasn't clear at the time that that's what was happening. Elliot's part that he ended up coming up with was just this sort of like buzzy, um, noisy, distorted thing that kind of starts to take over and then 
static out. The idea that like there are all these instruments in a jet that just start to buzz and swallows up all the, takes up all the air. That part of the song, it was just supposed to get really dense. I wasn't saying to Elliot, you can't hear me, but I was saying I'm getting drowned out by all this noise. My artistic breakthrough in Heat Miser was on Cop and Speeder with a song called Why Did I Decide to Stay? And that was a much mellower song. I just liked that one better than anything I'd written previously. And so I just started trying to write more stuff like it. I remember working on Rest My Head Against the Wall and that was really great. It was really fun. Elliot doesn't play on Rest My Head Against the Wall. It was a demo that worked out. And the slide was an acoustic guitar mic'd with that manly through Tony's AC30. And Sam is playing keyboards. That one was kind of a curveball, I think, from what I had always thought Heat Miser was about. You know, and to a certain extent, the entire album is, but that song, especially like a ballad and, um, you know, I didn't associate Neil with that style of music at that time. Yeah, I just, I remember I played a, keyboard on it and i was like i'm still a little not really sold on the keyboard um it was like a Rhodes, you know panned out stereo which to me i associate that with um like soft rock and and all kinds of stuff that i don't like but it seemed to work at the time and, and at the time it seemed a little bit subversive because heat miser had been this aggressive electric guitar band and now we're doing this like stevie nicks shit that <laughs> Just like, I don't know. But, you know, went along with it. And I, I think it turned out really well. I remember that being one of the ones where they had uh, recorded first before I did the drums. I came in and overdubbed the drums. I had this toy drum set that I bought and used the bass drum from that. It was a little tiny, like, 12-inch kick drum. And really the trick on that is I don't... Neil didn't do it to a click, so it's kind of like learning the song and learning where the tempo ebbs and flows and trying to make it feel organic. By that point, Neil had really learned how to work the studio well enough. I don't know how much he and Elliot would do stuff together when I wasn't around, but yeah, he knew how to work things well enough to just set up and start recording. And then he called me up to come play drums on it. And as far as the mix goes, uh, he just wasn't happy with the mix that they got down at Robin Tom Studio in Arcata. And so after the bulk of the album was mixed, I did that mix back at our studio. Tony mixed that, sounded great, and it just always was the version we liked the best. When I walked across this corner, pinned my eyes to a shirt, cause I'm scared of being seen. Lost myself in a stall, rest my head against the
but to talk about what specifically rests my head against the wall is about. I had a crush. I used to uh, walk downtown in Portland and listen to music. I did that all the time. And I usually didn't even have a destination downtown, but I liked the walk. You walk across the bridge, cross the water, and Portland's beautiful to walk around in. And so I would walk past this gas station and the owner of the gas station was this guy that I developed a total obsession over. He was a straight guy, you know. I found him really appealing. And so I would walk by, I would make an excuse to walk by that gas station all the time. And it would be really thrilling to see him. And then afterwards, I would just feel sort of hopeless because I didn't know how to meet anybody. That's what Rest My Head Against the Wall and Cruel Reminder are about, is walking past that gas station and having this thrilling crush that would then, I would just crash afterwards because I didn't know how to actually meet anybody. I just didn't feel like I could connect with anyone. My experience back then was, you know, I was in the closet until, really until I moved to Portland. So moving to Portland was like a rebirth. The thing is, is I was 21 and I had no experience being in a relationship, whereas all my straight friends, they had girlfriends when they were 14 years old. You know, they'd had some training about what that's like. And you, it's also something that you're taught when you're straight. But I didn't have any guidance. It's also like AIDS had killed the generation of gay men who would have been mentors to people my age. And they were wiped out. So I didn't know other gay people and I wasn't comfortable talking about how little I knew. And so I would just let it come out in songs. And the way it came out was just kind of this constant dissatisfaction, <laughs> which is a sort of embarrassing now because it's, you know, this little white kid talking about what's bad all the time. But at the time, I was very lonely and didn't know how to make it better. I'm not sure that I never had the nerve Cause I've always felt like an easy kill But I'm pretty sure that I'm never gonna know If I'm his kind of pill Unlock the The Fix Is In is definitely another high moment. I mean, that's probably my second favorite Elliot song on the album because I did like how, you know, even before Rob and Tom, we sort of managed to get through our tension to do something really cool. Like, I remember coming over to play on it 
you know, he asked me to come play drums on the song, and I think that Elliot had done most of it. Definitely, you know, the main guitar, the Rhodes, and the vocal. And so there was a good convergence of in the drum sounds in my emerging creativity with sound, and I felt like I was able to really contribute to the mood of the song. That was one of the more complex recordings that we did. It was really cool. I love that song. Tony's drums through an amp and then they eventually come out and the song expands but there is also just this sort of dark groove but also kind of detached ghosty thing to it the fixes in was the other song where I came in and overed up the drums on an existing track we did several takes just because there are some tempo shifts and I had to try to fit in with that but I remember Again, in an experimental mood, using the snare from that toy drum kit that I had. Well, both that and my regular snare. Like, I switched to my regular snare during the choruses. And, you know, I remember working really hard to fit in with the mood of it. You know, it's so dreamy. It has this really slow, dreamy mood. And at least for me, when I'm trying to play to a song that doesn't have a click, I'm anticipating it a little bit. And I remember finally getting one where I felt like I navigated the tempo changes really well. And I went to listen back and I just felt like I was, it felt a little edgy to me. I felt like I was leaning ahead of the beat a bit as I was just anticipating things. And since we were working on digital, it was easy to just shift things. And I remember this was one of these classic impasses we would get to. I remember just shifting all the drum tracks slightly later so that it seemed to gel and not be so antsy in comparison to the rest of the instruments. And Elliot got so mad. He's like, it doesn't have to be perfect. And he stormed out. And I was just, I was so annoyed and confused and frustrated by that because it wasn't that I was trying to make it perfect. I mean, this is a good example about how he sort of saw a lot of my choices as being about making everything perfect. For me, I made that change because the feel. I wanted the feel of the drums to work. And I think it was better that way. And he must have come around to it because I, I don't remember how long that particular argument went on, but at some point we came back and then I, you know, tried running the drums through my little amp and then really liking how that sounded in the verses. And, and I remember talking to him like, oh, when we mix it, it should shift from the amp sound during the verses and then kind of open up in the B section and in the chorus, used just the regular mic. So it kind of gets a little more hi-fi, opens up during those, when I switched to my regular snare. And he did honor that when they did the mix in Arcadia. That was before I got down there. And I think it turned out really well.
as far as overdubs go, all I remember, remember is that I, I did have the idea of trying Ebo bass. I was like, and Rob and Tom were there. I was like, you should do Ebo bass. And I don't know if they thought I was serious at first, but they did end up trying it. Yeah, it's like, Meh. I remember Rob would always kind of make fun of it because it is pretty funny. It's a funny sound, but it works. That's true. Yeah, now that you mention it, Ebo bass. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I had played Ebo with various instruments. It's designed for guitar, but you can even use it on piano if you open the piano up and get a nice drone and <clears throat> I'd used it on bass and um, interestingly you can even use it on drums it'll it'll resonate the um, the head of a drum so I, I I was familiar with the ebo using it in various ways and then what I play is really just the chords of the song but I'm on a, an acoustic guitar going through an amp that just kind of comes in when the song kind of hits the ground but all the other parts of the song are kind of up in this sort of detached helium balloon hovering over the ground and then it comes down. embarrassing but eagle eye was about going to a gay bar and just feeling like i was the only person there who didn't know anybody what it appeared like to me was that i would go to a gay bar and everybody else had gay friends and a big group of gay people who they could have fun with eventually i had gay friends i don't want to make it sound like i didn't because i had great gay friends but going to bars always made me feel isolated because I didn't know how to meet people without just completely giving away that I was attracted to someone. I didn't know, like, how do you, how do you be casual about that? Because for so long, my attraction to men was something I had to, I felt like I had to be hidden. And once it didn't have to be hidden, it just felt so naked and I felt so vulnerable just saying hello to someone that if they didn't respond kindly and with the same interest, I would be crushed. <laughs> so, you know, and, and that's just from being immature, just being in the closet for so long and not having any experience. So... Eagle Eye is about the thrill of going to the bars and then the disappointment of not meeting somebody every weekend.
Well, that was a funny song in terms, at least in terms of the drums. That's another one that I think we had played live once or twice. That was a hard drum part to be really consistent all the way through, and so I kind of wanted to layer it. And I think they might have looped it. It's just, it's kind of a crazy song. <laughs> one of the bands that I didn't mention that I loved, loved, loved was the Feelies. And the way that the guitar players, the two guitar players played in that band, I just, I thought was the greatest thing. And Eagle Eye is a straight rip on the Feelies. I could see how that might have been uh, an inspiration for it. But I, I think, again, a lot of Neil's songs, especially on the earlier records, were were fast and rhythmic like that. So it, to me, that was not as much of a change up. Heat Miser at that time was was sort of growing and trying new things. And when I first started playing, I was playing the older songs, which I thought was fun. They were more like driving rhythmic rock songs. And uh, as they started to evolve into to more you know crafted sort of pop style songs actually it was a little probably a little more in my wheelhouse we played eagle eye i don't know if we put it on tour but i know we played it at at least one show i remember we played a show up at washington park in 1995 but i remember being really unhappy because you know we had completely changed our sound and the, a lot of the songs felt kind of half-baked in terms of how we were playing them live and I just didn't feel confident in what I was doing and the sound was really bad and uh, I don't know if that was maybe the last show we played together but it was definitely one of them. Reminder, I love. That's my favorite Neil one on the album. It's great. It's got it's just propulsive and great chord changes, melody. I remember there being some kind of tension where Elliot was mad because he thought the lyrics were about him, and I remember Neil saying that they weren't. But I think they could be read that way. But that would be a question for Neil. <laughs> That's funny because it's totally not about him. There are other songs that are directly about him that I wrote that didn't end up on the record. But this one absolutely wasn't about him. It was about my crush at the gas station. To me, the line I keep trying to see from a better position, it's no good. Like, that's the one that sort of, to my ear, sounds like it could be about that dynamic. I mean, I did have a sense that the tension was growing between Neil and Elliot. That um, accordion sound that comes in, that was Elliot. I had this old 80s sampler called an Emacs. You know, that accordion melody part, I mean, that was like, it was a good example of how Elliot could add something really cool to a Neil song. You know, I do think that Neil, I mean, certainly his, his melody writing 
got way better as the band went along and was really strong on that album. But he's definitely more like kind of guitar, chord, and riff focused. And then, you know, Elliot could come in and add something like that. Either, you know, maybe Elliot's guitar might be a little more melodic against Neil's chords. Yeah, they complemented each other really well that way. We also brought Sean Krogan in to sing on that. And that was super fun because Sean is one of the most uninhibited singers I'd heard. And that's what it needed. I'm not an uninhibited singer, you know, (laughs) but Sean is, he's a force of nature. It was great to have him on there. I think he probably got mixed too quietly in it, but he's the one who's screaming in the back. We were focused on our band. We were focused on making music. There was no drugs at all in Hemiser. I mean, we drank, but I, I was concerned about Elliot's depression. I'd been through two really bad periods with him where he would become suicidal. Uh, that was a concern. And, and, and that... That's one of the reasons why we didn't yell or anything like that, because we didn't want anything to escalate into something where that would trigger, you know, a much worse emotional response. You know, this is the first time I ever said that out loud, but it's it's true. um, He had periods where the depression would overtake him. And um, we would... I I would do anything to um, prevent that. And at the time, I thought I could actually do something to help prevent it, which is not the case. (laughs) I'm not sure what would trigger it. I remember a period where he was reading um, Crime and Punishment, and he got really depressed. Uh, And I remember a period, periods when he would break up with his longtime girlfriend. There were two major relationships that I saw. I mean, I saw three major relationships of his end, and they were long, drawn-out, painful processes of breaking up. And, I mean, the same thing happened with me and him, essentially, where we had to... The band breaking up was like breaking up with a partner. And those breakups could cause, you know, periods of really intense depression for him. I would try to talk him out of it. And he would just say, you, this is something you're never going to talk me out of. It, I mean, it, it, and it just sounded so crazy to me. You know, I, I just didn't. I thought that I could talk him out of being depressed, but he, you know, he needed more help than, you know, his 25 year old friend. 
talked about his childhood immediately when I first met him. I knew all that stuff like that stuff was his childhood, the experiences of his childhood were front and center in his mind when I met him. My family experience was completely different than what he described and I couldn't relate. Most people didn't know how to deal with that. I can definitely hear the references to, or, you know, what could be references to Dallas, Dallas and his experiences, but I haven't really read that much into it, to be honest. I wish that we would have had more conversations about that stuff, you know? I would have liked to have understood where he was coming from on that level a little bit better. Just Dallas town where the sky burns bright wide I watch the sun go down In the moonlight you walk like a spotlight So stumbling trip down a broken street With your planet packed in the car You just need don't go far one of the things that Elliot and I both really loved was a kind of AM radio nighttime listening experience that I associate with being in a car in the Midwest late at night after work and hearing music on the AM radio. There's just like this expansive but lonely feeling. Anything that kind of has this sort of epic and heart-opening feeling, but also acknowledges the loneliness that you can feel when things are so open, always gets me. And that song just nails that. So my drums on You Gotta Move really reflect Elliot's style more than mine. Like a couple of the fills I took directly from his demo, like fills that he did on the demo, and which I think is good because he did have a looser style on the drums. My style was always pretty meat and potatoes. I maybe felt a little bit insecure about kind of being more improvisational. I kind of like to have my parts laid out and um, my fills are pretty just serviceable, but not super inspired or loose. And, you know, Elliot was more into having things be loose. And so I think hearing him do some of that on You Gotta Move, I just incorporated that into how I played the drums on that song. The whole thing with him giving me more direct feedback on what to play started during Mike City Suns. He knew how to play drums before that. I don't know how much he was playing drums before that, but he was definitely getting more confident about it at that point. And definitely on songs where he demoed them with the drums, he might have really specific ideas. And, you know, on You Gotta Move, I think there was that sense of when it does that break after the first chorus, you know, that fill kind of comes in at just the last 
sort of moment that it could without feeling like it, I was just way too late. So I think that was part of his influence, not only on the fills, but just kind of loosening up the feel a bit. I also, on one song, played a, like a little slide guitar, which was fun. I think after I kind of threw my hissy fit at Rob for tripping out on my bass parts, the guys, my friends in the band, were <laughs> decided they wanted to like, oh, let's let's let Sam play a guitar solo <laughs> because he seems kind of bent out of shape, and um, so that was really nice of them. And I also liked that little guitar solo that I did on there. I just remember it was one of those really late nights. I think we got a noise complaint. It was pretty late at night. The house we were recording in was right up against another house. And, you know, they were originally doing it. It was probably a really great sound, but it was through an amp and it was really fucking loud. You know, and it must have been at least like one in the morning or something. And they were doing all these takes of it. <laughs> and neighbor came over and like banged on the door. And so they thought, well, they'd have to stop and save it for another day. And I was like, well, why don't you try it? The Tob and Ram had brought a sand amp, which I don't think I'd ever seen one before. Or maybe I had, but they had the sand amp rack. I was like, why don't you try it through that? And so it's not as good of a sound, but at least they were able to get it done that night because, man, it was loud. Yeah, we were just recording it with headphones. So it's possible there was a noise complaint. It was just a house set up in a neighborhood. In those days, you know, Portland was not like it is now. You could just, well, let's rent this house for a month. <laughs> it's affordable. Poppin' G is a song that we had worked out and played way before we started working on the album. Like We played it live a few times, and I just always thought it was an Elliott song. So I'm just as curious as anyone whether it's true that Neil wrote it and Elliott sang it. No, it's Elliott's. I mean, legally, we wrote all the songs together. But he brought that in and wanted to throw it away, and I absolutely wouldn't let him. Another one that we recorded the bulk of, or at least the rhythm track before Rob and Tom came along. Like I remember setting up and doing it, and maybe they ended up redoing the rhythm guitars because they ultimately sound more like the kind of guitar sounds they would get. But yeah, the arrangement and everything was pretty laid out, and we at least got a good start on it on our own. You know, lyrically, this is one that I did 
you know, true to form in terms of not paying attention to the lyrics. Like I was very late to the game in starting to read the lyrics as Elliot expressing his frustration with me and kind of my studio, what he saw as my studio perfectionism. And uh, yeah, it kind of stung. Although I'm not unempathetic to how I could be frustrating if our goals were at odds. I could be very... It could be stubborn. But one thing I've learned over the years is like, it's always subjective. And like one person might fixate on certain elements to express what they're going for that maybe just completely fly over the head of another person. And you wonder why do they care so much about that being just right? You know? And so I think there was some of that going on to him. He's like, this doesn't have to be perfect. Why do you want it to be perfect? And so... I can be empathetic to some of his frustration with me, but assuming that those lyrics are about his frustration with me, it's like, it felt a bit much, maybe. But also makes me wish that maybe we would have just communicated better and had more conversations. So then it's weird to be playing drums on a song where the singer's mad at you. That, yeah, and you make me feel like I'm half my age and at least twice as nervous, you know, like referencing the dynamic of us as teenagers and having similar tensions over how to approach recording and stuff. But, you know, maybe I'm just being uh, super self-absorbed. And <laughs> I just thought it sounded great. I thought it rocked. You know, it was rare enough that Elliot would write a rock song at that point, so... I was just happy we had something like it. I mean, the reality was Elliot was an interesting person. And if you're his friend and you're hanging around and there's all this, I mean, you know, I don't want to put him down, but there tended to be a lot of drama around Elliot. <laughs> and um, so you write about that because you're caught up in it. And um, I, I think that's, that's natural and good to write about, uh, you know, these sort of psychological phenomena that are happening around your life. So it's quite possible that they had an argument about that and they probably both had good points. Again, trying to stay out of the conflicts between the band members who had a lot more invested in the, in the band emotionally and, and just physically and time-wise just had to be my strategy. <laughs> so I... Uh, a few times I, I remember trying to assuage people and say, like, come on, let's just, you know, we're working. Let's keep working. Yeah, it's unfortunate there was uh, so much conflict, but sometimes good things are born for, out of conflict. It would have been great to get through it without the conflicts and the tension. But maybe on some level that added to it, I don't know. It's hard to, to know if it would have gone differently, if everything would have gone smoothly. That's where the title of the record came from. It's completely meaningless. It's just, I don't even think he knew what Mike City Sons was. But that's, I think that's the first line. Mike City Sons seemed to dumb everything down. It's a good title. You know, I didn't, uh, I didn't extend my whatever hurt feelings I might have had to 
the album being named that because it's a really great title. So I can't argue with it. I took that line and said, that's the name of the record. I don't know why. And he said, okay. <laughs> but I love that song. I just think it rocks. record was very internal and full of uh, like the unspoken emotion of what we were going through but also just what we were like that's just what we wrote about so to have a rock song that's trying to push out of that holding things internally is sort of the tension of the whole record This is another one I remember where I was struggling to get just the right feel and feeling like I do a take and they say something about the feel not being quite right and just not quite understanding what they mean. Like it needed to swing in a certain way, the way I was doing like the Tom and the verses, but not feeling, I wasn't feeling massively frustrated at the time. It was just kind of like, I don't know what you mean. I want to get it right. I want people to be happy with it, but doing more takes on that one than a lot of the other songs. Yeah, I mean, they were definitely right in getting me to play that feel. I just remember in the moment not quite understanding what I was doing wrong. And that can be frustrating when you're on the other side of the foam and you can't see anyone's face. <laughs> I think I remember hearing a, an interview um, about the police when they were doing synchronicity and now they were all they couldn't get along and they were all in different parts of this big studio complex and there was like a video uh, like they had a camera on Stuart Copeland but he couldn't see anyone else and he'd do a take and then there'd just be silence you're like sitting at the end of a take not getting any feedback from people and it is a really it's a vulnerable moment where you can feel like okay that wasn't right but you don't know why and nobody's saying anything for a bit. So you can kind of just like insert all your insecurities into that dead air there where you're waiting for someone to say something. Blue Highway is the kind of last version of two other songs that all sound really different, but they share kind of some of the same lyrics. The lyric they all share is about the windshield cracking and the lines in my hand and the map of a broken heart, which is just this imagery I was clinging to about what the band was going through and what my friendship with Elliot was going through, where I just felt like it was cracking and that it was like fate, that it was in, in the palm of my hand and it was breaking my heart.
So that was what the most important lines in that song were. Everything else, I just had to come up with something to finish it. I think it was the last one that got finished for the record. And I don't remember much beyond that. It was a race towards the end. There was a period in the middle, I remember it was over Thanksgiving, where Elliot and I just needed to get a lot of overdubs and a lot of our parts done. And that I remember being great, where we just worked together. We were recording each other. We were there every day. And we got a ton of stuff done. And then Rob and Tom came back and they were like, great. And then helped us finish up. And then we took it. Elliot and I drove down in a Lincoln town car to the studio that Rob and Tom had in California and mixed it there. That was it. I remember when Elliot played what he was working on, I was like, that's the single. Like, that's great. Like, that's a super catchy song. That was one of my favorite songs on the record. And I remember first hearing it and thinking, oh, this song's great, you know? I think I told Elliot something like, oh, this song's going to buy you a house. (laughs) Because it seemed like a a hit song to me, you know, like a a legit hit. Um, It didn't turn out to be, but... It had that air about it to me. See You Later was one of the first songs that we worked out before even starting recording the album. It was one of the first songs, I think, that we practiced with Sam. That's one where I do remember a sense of, we had come back from that tour that I talked about where there was a tension around changing the sound of the band. And I remember they came over to rehearse in the basement of the house where I was living. It's the same basement where we mixed Roman Candle and the self-titled record. I remember there was a sense of how that opening riff comes in of it being like, oh, this is a really different feel for Heat Miser. Every once in a while, we would connect on something and just nail it. And that, I think the guitars on that song are just fucking rad. It's a great groove. I can't believe how laid back Tony is and how like we still stay together. And it just has this slow, rocking groove that's kind of the best part of what that band could do. Even though it's kind of a a very commercial, and I thought it was going to be a hit, it's recorded kind of minimally, just like a band playing, which is one of the things I really love about it. It's not, it doesn't have a bunch of overdubs, and um, it doesn't sound overly careful. And for an obvious pop song, something that I thought could be a hit. I thought that was a great approach to not put like, oh, let's let's put strings on it or, you know, obvious production touches to make it more commercial. It was already commercial enough, just the melody and the and the feel and the rhythm of the song. It was already there. See you later. 
For some reason, it, I didn't find this like little catch line, see you later, as annoying as get lucky. It's a little bit similar, just like throwing in a line that people use all the time. It's a, it's a writing device that I actually use a lot too, and I think it's good. And I think in this case, it's successful because it, you, know, you can interpret that line, even though it's mundane and used every single day by most people uh, in different ways if you start thinking about it. I mean, it just sounded like a single to me, you know, it seemed like it was the catchiest one lyrically and it sounded great. And then nothing happened with it. You know, we didn't choose to make the video out of that song and we chose playing Coldest Man instead. And then we just abandoned the record. I think I was quite aware that people were at right on the verge of just throwing up their hands and saying, forget it. But... You know, at the same time, I think people also could hear the music and were happy with what was happening. A lot of times bands get into that. It's not, you're having problems that don't have anything to do with the actual music, um, but they're interpersonal things or it's just problems you're going through in your life. At some point you have to like focus on the music and, and decide if that's worthwhile. When bands break up, it's when, you know, you have the normal trauma and drama and then you listen to the music and like, this sucks. <laughs> Like there's nothing here anymore. But if the music's good, you have incentive to continue. When Rob and Tom came on board, it really did feel like things were going more smoothly. I think it gave me more hope for the viability of the band. And I remember being out on the front porch of the house. Ellie was having a cigarette and saying something about our next album. And he asked me, oh, you think that there will be more after this? And it wasn't like in a mean way or whatever, but like, I guess it struck me. Like, I guess I hadn't been, at that point, I wasn't thinking about the end of the band. It still felt like we could work together. So I wasn't feeling like there was this inevitability of it being over. I mean, I, I think that Elliot probably knew that that was going to be it, or that was his feeling. He really wanted to do his own thing. Um, part of my feeling about having some hope might have just been because I had extracted myself from a lot of the recording process, the overdub process at that point. And so I wasn't necessarily witnessing tension between Elliot and Neil that much. I just maybe felt somewhat relieved of the tension at that point. And it seemed like, oh, we can work with outside producers and get good stuff done. And so maybe this could keep going. Because we had a contract with Virgin that was for several records. And so... You know, in some ways, it felt like a good deal to be able to have this, our own studio and be able to have advances and have creative control and do our own thing. And so I think after things were going seemingly more smoothly, I guess I naively thought that, oh, maybe we can continue. When we embarked on the major label deal and buying a studio and making this record, I fully believed that if we made a great record, it would make things easier and it would make the next step easier you know we would 
finally have a booking agent. We would maybe start selling out shows. We would make another record. We would get on the radio. Our records would end up in record stores when we actually showed up in town and uh, to play. I thought all of that stuff was gonna follow. Hey Neil, you want to play that song? Or you want me to just play it? It's up to you. Oh, is there a guitar that that Neil can play? You can play a song, guitar. We got a guitar. You look like Roy Rogers with that guitar. You gotta play loud or something? Yes. We gotta pick up the music. That's a song that made up today, but it's probably kinda bad. <laughs> distinct memory of Rob and Tom being adamant there shouldn't be more than 12 songs. I don't remember the thought process in deciding to make Half Right unlisted after See You Later. On London Calling, Train in Vain isn't credited on the original pressing. I just thought that was the coolest thing. It was just this idea of hidden treasures that we were always trying to put into the recording. That song was just supposed to be a hidden treasure. Half Right is, you know, among my favorite Elliot songs. I think that there's such an elegance and simplicity to the chord changes and the melody. I mean, it's deceptively simple, but I find it really moving. And I have just great feelings attached to that song, not only because of the quality of the song and the songwriting, but because I said the drums happened in one take and it just felt really easy compared to a lot of the, the rest of the recording. Compared to something like The Fix Is In, which was very complicated to play. Half Right was just this effortless song. Probably came together really fast. I don't remember much else about it, except that I loved it. Well, you shouldn't doctor yourself Well, I pictured somebody some developments in Elliot's songwriting kind of after Heat Miser where I felt like I got a bit detached from what he was doing. It could get so complex in the arrangements and like he got really into passing chords and like his songs to me sometimes sounded like they'd be all passing chords and like Half Right to me 
feels like this apex of a beautiful simplicity that's really emotionally direct. And like I said, deceptive simplicity. It's not simple songwriting. It's a very well-crafted song, but the emotion is just really accessible in it. Yeah, that's a good song. That's like, it's got a nice uh, emotional resonance to it. To me, the, some of the later stuff is overproduced and, you know, and I, and I was there. It was really, it was great. I was able to go into the studio and Abbey Road with him. And as a musician, you know, that was really fun and interesting. But honestly, I think in the end, I, I think I prefer the more stripped down stuff. So we did all the vocals last. And I do remember thinking, well, fuck, I wish I'd put a bunch of harmonies on my songs. Like, this sounds incredible. But then we were out of time. <laughs> I was sticking up for my friend when there's nothing much to I don't know. I remember being at the session where we kind of edited the album sequence together to send for mastering. I think it was just me and Elliot. You know, the only memory I really have of that was just listening back to the finished version of Half Right. And like when his background vocals come in, those ahs come in in the last verse, just being like, wow, that's really great. So I just remember that moment of hearing those and just being like, oh, this is really great. And he seemed to really appreciate that I noticed that detail. When we finished it, the record company thought it was a great record. They were very complimentary about it. They were happy with what we made, but we weren't going to tour. And as soon as that became clear, and as soon as it was clear, like the machinations of what was happening with Elliot's solo stuff, there was no momentum for the band once that record was done. It just stopped. It's all they have passed And it won't last I think Ellie was doing a solo tour and I hadn't heard anything from him for a while and I needed to decide whether I was going to continue to see through the Dandy Warhols record or go back to working with Heat Miser. And since I hadn't heard anything, I just went ahead and booked more studio time with the Danny Warhols. And then I remember getting a phone call from him where he wanted to talk about doing a tour. And I said, I just committed to this record. And he seemed really frustrated with that too. Like, well, we need to do this tour. And I just said, I hadn't heard anything from you. So I had to make a decision. So yeah, that must've been before we did the Plain Clothes Man video. You know, when we got back, I. I composed a very, you know, well, an overly pointed, let's call it a resignation letter <laughs> that I sent to email that, you know, I, I think I wouldn't do that now. It was definitely taking out a lot of my pent-up frustration on him. So it was, it was unnecessarily harsh, but I was really just feeling done at that point. The label was like, you have to tour. Tony was like, I'm done. And so we got John Mullen to play drums. I remember that just being everybody on that tour was just mainly interested in 
getting Elliot away from the band wasn't that fun. It was fun being with Sam and John, but it wasn't very long. It was like two weeks or something. And then that was that was the last thing we did. Yeah, at that point, I think we were calling it like the contractual obligation tour or something like that. The label booted the album down to a subs- like an indie subsidiary and um, Mike City Sons, we did that tour. It, <laughs> it was desolate. There was nobody getting the shows. I mean, you know, a few cities, a few people came out. But uh, yeah, it wasn't, that record was not a successful record commercially. And we didn't officially break up until like a year later. Yeah, he called me and he said, so I'm going to sign to DreamWorks. And in order to do that, I have to close this contract with Heatmiser. And I said, okay, that was it. And it didn't, it didn't even feel like we're never going to play together again. It just felt like a contractual obligation. That's probably like, was probably wishful thinking on my part. You know, even after Heat Miser broke up, I continued to work with Elliot for years. So, you know, he, we played shows together, him solo and my band. And um, so we were still quite, you know, close and working together. And yeah, I could see certainly there, I, I watched the whole thing from close range. <laughs> I could see it happening. I mean, he moved away from Portland and um, I did all, all of the tours um, that he did that were full band tours. Uh, although, you know, at a certain point I had had enough and, and um, he had got a new band together, but I don't think those guys ever went on tour. Um, so yeah, at the end, things, things were weird in a lot of ways, but again, this is, uh, you know, this was a long time ago. I don't, I'm at peace with the whole situation. I don't, I don't really, I just leave it in the past. We'd gone through a while where we didn't speak to the point where I remember being in New York a couple of times and being at a bar or a show where he was and we just pretended like we didn't know each other. We didn't speak at all. It was that bad. Then after seeing him on the Oscars, I, I was driving down a street called Broadway here in Portland and I just saw him sitting outside a Starbucks himself and I just decided to pull over walked up and just said I know we've had our problems I'm really proud of you and he was instantly receptive he got up and gave me a hug and we sat and talked for a while and you know he wasn't living here anymore at that point so our friendship we didn't get back to a close friendship but we were on good terms I hung out with him a few more times after that you know it was fine it was kind of back to being able to just hang out joke around uh, even if we weren't as close as we had been before Yeah, I'm glad that we had a chance to resolve that tension while he was still around. We'd been through so much together that I just thought, well, who knows what the future is going to be. And I didn't think we would ever stop being friends. Every time Elliot finished a record, he would bring it over and we would listen to it together. And same thing with me. If I finished something, I'd bring it over and we'd listen to it together. We always stayed connected about music. It's not half right. It's not half right. 
Occasionally, somebody will come up to me and say, oh, Heat Miser is my favorite band. <laughs> and it kind of blows my mind because we were just such an obscure band and we did not have success. But I, I think because Elliot went on to have success, people went back and like listened to that and, and were like, wow, what a great band. So um, the reputation of the band and the audience for the band has really grown a lot. At the time that we were active, it, we were just you know, completely underground and, and um, had just the merest vestige of an audience. Um, so I think it's nice whenever you can reach people in any project, even if you're just peripherally involved with it, uh, you gotta, you gotta be happy. I mean, that's what it's all about. I mean, I'm, I'm not just a musician. I'm a fan too. I, music means so much to me when I, when I hear something that moves me, that, that means something to me, I'm so grateful. So to hear other people convey that to me, that something I was involved with and my friends were, you know, were even more involved with is, is, it's very gratifying. I think Mike City Sons is definitely a high point. I mean, it's so far above our first two records, just in terms of the songwriting quality, the dynamics, the the synergy between Neil and Elliot's writing styles, and really being able to devote a lot of time and energy to having the songs come out the best way they could. We did work on it a lot, way more than our first two records, and... So really on every level, it was a huge step up. It is very meaningful to have been involved in something that people still care about 25 years later. I think the thing that I like the most about that record is that it, it has a, a really solid, distinct personality and a sound that it's really what we set out to do. And I didn't realize that we had succeeded at it at the time because we just gave up on it, you know? I hadn't heard Mike City Sons in like 15 years. And I listened to it a couple weeks ago in the car and I was like, this is great. Oh my God, this sounds, well, I, I just heard it for what it was, which is just like the end of something is coming. Visit lifeofthe-record.com. For more information about Heatmiser, you'll also find a link to stream or purchase Mike City Sons. Thanks for listening. <laughs>